For October 7th, 2015, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into, related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Every time it rains, it rains, and it's from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains, and it's from heaven. You'll find your fortune fallen all over town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today we're continuing our discussion from the previous episode about renewable energy's limits on the grid, and we'll be speaking with Ben Paulus, Principal of Paulus Analytics and Director of the Power Markets Project. Ben has an unusually comprehensive and deep understanding of the operation of grid power markets, and I'm excited to have him on the show. In an August 11th article at Green Tech Media titled, How Wind and Solar Will Blow Up Power Markets, Ben addressed a question that is becoming more important as renewables gain a larger share of grid power. Will renewables become victims of their own success? The problem is that because renewables have no fuel cost, once they're built, their power is very nearly free. And in wholesale spot power markets where prices are set on a very short-term basis, like an hour or a day ahead, they drive down the price of all power on the system. As Ben explained in his piece, quote, in a typical market, generators place bids to supply power during a future hour or day. The bids are lined up by price and selected in order, the so-called merit order, from low to high until demand is met. The last winner sets the price for power for that hour, and all winners get that price. Now that's fine when renewables are driving out some portion of more expensive generation from conventional power plants, and it's good for consumers. But what happens when they become most of the supply? The wholesale price of power could fall so low that even wind and solar can't make any money. Now, in actuality, other renewables like geothermal power and marine energy might face the same problem in the future. But for now, it's more of an issue for wind and solar, which already provide more than 20% of the electricity mix in countries like Denmark, Portugal, Spain, Ireland, and Germany. Some researchers, notably German energy economist Leon Hirth, I'm not sure about the pronunciation of his name, but we'll go with that, a former renewables analyst at the Swedish utility Vattenfall, have suggested that this means there's a fairly low limit to how much renewable power grid power markets can accommodate, unless storage is deployed at scale or renewable power is subsidized for a very long time. But to turn that idea on its head for a moment, how is free or nearly free power a problem? If electricity markets were designed such that we only paid the amortized cost of the equipment and its maintenance over a period of decades with no fuel cost, wouldn't that be preferable to paying for equipment maintenance and fuel like we do today for conventional generators? The fact is that our power markets were designed around generators that do have fuel costs. 
So this issue is only a problem in as much as we're trying to bolt an entirely different breed of device onto the wrong kind of market. Rather than using subsidies and storage capacity to fit renewables onto existing markets, maybe we should be thinking about markets that are designed for the future, where renewable generators can still make a profit as they take over the grid. So let's bring Ben into the conversation here and see what he has to say about it. Welcome, Ben, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. So we clearly have two distinct questions here about how solar and wind generators can get paid. How can they do it in the short term? And how might the market design need to change to accommodate a large share of the generation in long term? Yeah, I think in the short term, that is when wind and solar are in relatively small amounts, that they can operate just fine in a traditional power market. I think as long as the merit order effect is not very big and the clearing prices in the market are set by other conventional generators, that the price impacts on wholesale prices will be fairly small most of the time. I'd say that most wind and solar don't actually play in the spot market anyway at this point. They get paid through bilateral contracts like power purchase agreements or feed-in tariffs in Europe and elsewhere. And that's true even if they're required to run their power through the market just for bidding purposes. But when they start to get bigger, when wind and solar are a bigger share, there will be more often more incidences when they actually set the clearing price and the prices will be low or even negative. They don't have to provide all the power in the market at those times, uh, really just enough to run up against other inflexible resources, you know, plants that don't get out of the way. Right. And that's most often, I think, nuclear plant. The inflexibility is a result of either technical reasons, like they don't ramp up and down very well. It's just the design of the plant, right. Mm -hmm. But it can also be for grid support reasons when you need a plant in a certain location to provide support, voltage and frequency support, right? like a, a reliability must-run plant, RMR plant. Right. And then for financial reasons, which I'd love to find out more about this actually, but I suspect some plants simply have it in their contracts that they don't have to turn down, that they don't have to respond to orders, but I'm not really sure about that. Hmm. Okay, so in the long term, how might we expect markets to be redesigned so that they can accommodate a large proportion of renewables as prices get lower and lower and lower? I mean, to the point mm -hmm. where under the way that they're currently getting paid as spot market participants, even wind and solar wouldn't be able to make money. So mm -hmm. as we go forward, What's the latest thinking on how markets might need to be redesigned in order to make sure that everybody gets paid as renewables get up to 60, 70, 80%? I think there hasn't been that much real world application of that problem because it hasn't really been an issue in many places. Yeah. I think Germany is the closest to that, and they're in the middle of a reform now to their markets. The Ministry of Economy, the Commerce Department essentially in Germany, has put out a white paper that lays out their proposals for legislation on how to reform the market. In Germany, they have a very strong commitment to competition in the power sector, which really only Texas, I think, is analogous to it in the U.S., where they really firmly believe in competition, come what may. <laughs> right. So there was a lot of discussion in Germany about adopting a capacity market right. where generators get paid just for being available in future years. Even when they're not generating power. Right. Just simply to be available. Yeah. And that's the system that we have in PJM, New York, New England. Right. And which we do not have in Texas. Texas rejected that as an anti-competitive policy, which 
was the result in Germany now too. The conventional generators were pushing very strongly for a capacity payment. Of course. Uh, of course. <laughs> and it was rejected by the, the Merkel government in favor of a reform that basically has three elements, which are quite a bit like Germany in some ways. The first is to eliminate price caps. There would be no price caps so that in those periods of extreme demand and right. that prices can go wherever they want. Right. So if we suddenly go from $55 a megawatt hour to $2,000 a megawatt hour, so be it. So be it. And right. if you're producing ka-ching, you know, right. you're, you're good. We've seen some of that in Texas this week with record power demand mm -hmm. and prices shot up. How far did they get up in Texas? Do you know? You know, I, I need to look that up. Yeah. I saw, I think, high hundreds, maybe over $1,000 per megawatt hour. Okay, which is actually not unlike what happened in the Northeast during the winter this year where, mm -hmm. you know, we had spot power prices suddenly spike into $1,500 per megawatt territory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the problem that comes out of that is that generators don't trust the politicians to allow that spike to happen. Hmm. That if prices suddenly shoot up, that it's going to be reflected on people's bills and people will get upset. And that's exactly what happened that winter. You know, all these customers in Pennsylvania and elsewhere had these market bills, which they loved when prices were low. And then suddenly they get a bill in this winter polar vortex right. and the bill suddenly five times what it was before. And of course, they all scream bloody murder and get off of those market exposed prices. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of the high end of the free market outcome, right, is when prices mm -hmm. suddenly spike. But I think of more interest here is what happens when prices are so low because of all the renewables that nobody effectively is getting sufficiently paid. Yeah. So the reform in Germany was really it's intended to address that. What happens when you don't make enough money when the wind blows and the sun shines? And part of it was point one to eliminate the price caps was to say that, well, you will get paid on these other periods. You might get paid a lot and maybe you'll make up your revenues there. Oh, okay. The second reform they've put out is to expose customers more clearly to market prices. They want smart meters on everybody's houses, which they don't have now. They want real-time pricing for large customers. Mm -hmm. They want much more demand response, which mm -hmm. they have very, very little demand response in Germany. Mm -hmm. And these will all be ways that the demand side can respond to market prices, either low or high, and participate in the process more. So the idea being that if customers have the information to know that wind and solar are cranking right now, power prices are super low, um, they would presumably increase their demand, shift their demand over to those low price periods mm -hmm. and prevent essentially prices from falling too low. Exactly. Yeah. And conversely, they would respond to really high prices and prevent them from getting too high. So that's a very fundamental market mechanism that has been fairly lacking in Germany and really is lacking in a lot of markets. Really only the largest customers tend to play in that space. And small customers generally, uh, they're not exposed to those prices. There's a debate in California now about exposing residential customers to time of use prices, which aren't, aren't the same as real time. Real time means actually what's happening right now on the market. Right. Time of use prices means there are certain times of the day and the year that are tend to be higher demand, therefore you will be charged more. And they have established 
price bands at those different times of the day rather than exactly. it being a variable on-demand sort of a price. That's right. right. So it, it's a, a simplified version of real-time pricing because, you know, homeowners aren't going to sit around deciding whether to turn the TV on based on the power right. price. But still, the, the movement in California now is to put everybody on time of use prices so that we will have more of a response, I think, both to high solar production as well as to high price periods. So that's the reform in Germany is to really push more of that. The third element is to continue what they have, this thing they have called the capacity reserve, which is about 5% of capacity will be set aside and actually given a capacity payment to be available in case they are called upon in emergencies. And the emergency is high prices. So for political reasons, they're putting about three gigawatts of lignite plants in that capacity reserve, which is an odd choice you'd think for an emergency reply because yeah. you gotta you know fire up the boilers and everything. And they're dirty as heck. Well, lignite is pretty much the worst available fuel. Yeah, it's dirt that burns, right. as they say. But they did that for political reasons because the carbon emissions are too high in Germany. They wanted to shut them all down. But lignite is a domestic resource, and the politicians from the lignite fields had enough clout to prevent them from simply being shut off. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, those are the, the three elements they're looking at. What I haven't said is that they are also reforming payments to renewables. They've passed legislation last year to reform the feed-in tariff program and introduce more competitive elements to it. But that doesn't, by any means, involve simply exposing them to the market prices. The feed-in tariff becomes essentially a target price. So for the renewable generators that sell into the market, if they don't get paid enough, they get a what's called a market premium to make it up back to their feed-in tariff price. Okay. It's, I guess, what you'd call a contract for difference in right. the UK. They use that system. Right. So it's essentially a variable subsidy. But a variable subsidy with basically a floor. Yep. Okay. It might be a ceiling too. They might actually have to pay back money if they get paid too much in the market. I'm mm -hmm. not sure about that. Okay. But the other competitive element that they're trying is to set the feed-in tariff price through a competitive process in the first place. They have been setting it so far based on a sort of administrative ruling they figure out how much a wind farm should cost and then they calculate the price and that's the price you get paid. Now they're planning more of a reverse auction approach, which California has been using, where the potential new generators would bid in to the feed-in tariff market, essentially, and the least cost bidders would get awarded feed-in tariff prices. Mm -hmm. So, Well, okay, so what about these other kind of newer proposals for essentially unbundling, I guess that's the term of art, all the different elements of providing power to the grid and allowing all different sorts of generators to get paid for those things independently. So there's the actual energy supplied, and then there's the voltage regulation, frequency regulation, reliability, all that kind of stuff. All of those things now become separate elements that generators can get paid for. Because it seemed to me that renewables can really benefit from that kind of provision because they're distributed, right, rather than centralized. So what are your thoughts on how that unbundling concept might play into future market design? 
Yeah, there, there are a lot of ways that prices can be unbundled. Certainly valuing it by location. That happens now through what are called locational marginal prices, where you'll have, within a region, you'll have a, a bunch of nodes, which will all have different prices based on supply and demand in that node. So there might be, you know, 30 or 50 sub-regions within a larger region, all with slightly different prices. And that's intended to reflect congestion. It is now. It is now, right. Yeah, but I'm talking like 20, 30 years from now, you know, when we might even have 60, 70, 80% of renewable power on the grid. Wouldn't those kinds of payments potentially make sure that essentially there's a floor to the generation provided by renewables such that they're always going to be able to get paid for something? You know, locational pricing, I think that's actually a tricky one for a wind or solar generator because it, it always reflects congestion. I think you would argue that putting a solar plant in a congested area, you know, a load pocket, is a way to give it greater value because it reduces congestion. But it only does that, of course, when the sun shines. You may still have congestion when the sun is not shining. So I'm, I'm not so sure about locational value. I think one big reform from an overall system perspective is to incentivize flexible dispatchable generation, incentivize flexibility. Right now, the three primary products, there's an energy payment, which is the bulk of the money. There's a capacity payment in some places that we've talked about. And then there's the bundle of other things called ancillary services, mm -hmm. like frequency response and so on. There is no actual payment for flexibility. There are in a few places, California, for example, has a, I think they call it a flexi ramp where they offer greater payments to generators or load resources that can ramp quickly up or down. So that's an explicit payment for flexibility from resources that can offer flexibility. So the idea is that as, as you have more wind and solar on your system, you may have greater ramp periods. Hmm. Ramping means the change in net demand. So this is the famous duck curve Right. issue in California, right. where you get this very large early evening ramp as the sun starts to go down and demand goes up because everybody comes home and turns on their air conditioner. So the California summertime peak tends to be at like seven o'clock in the evening as the sun is starting to go down and solar power is reducing. So the net impact is that you have this very large ramp on some days from say 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. So if you have an extra incentive for plants that can make that ramp and provide that ramping service, that's a way to increase the flexibility of the system. Interesting. So it's almost an analog then of dispatchability, isn't it? Like uh, if you're a conventional generator, you can get paid for being able to dispatch at those times of suddenly rising demand. Mm -hmm. And this would sort of be an analog where you're getting paid for not necessarily dispatchability, but for being able to respond. Yeah, so it's not just capacity, it's quick capacity or the right kind of capacity, Yeah, the right kind of dispatchability. You know, that really needs to apply across the board, not just to power plants, but also to demand response, to storage. Sure. To everything on the demand side should be able to play in that same market. Well, I mean, ideally you'd want the market structure, however services are, are bundled or unbundled, to be able to apply sort of equally to all sorts mm -hmm. of generators, right? If you want a good competitive market. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how will we know that it's time to transition from the current sort of short-term compensation structures that renewables have to more of a long-term market design? Yeah, I, I think the short answer is that when there's sufficient pain from the... <laughs> <laughs> the obvious answer. Yeah, maybe kind of a dumb question. Yeah, from both the conventional and the renewable generators. Right. When there's sufficient disruption, you know, like what we're seeing in Germany with the big four utilities there, the combination of overcapacity in the European power market and these unique impacts of wind and solar are just destroying their revenues, their generation revenues. Mm -hmm. So that was clearly a sign that things need to change. Right. You know, going back to this Hearth paper that seems to have kind of been the genesis, or at least in the recent chatter, of a lot of these concerns about wind and solar kind of eating their own lunch, there were several things, and I don't know if you dug into his model at all, but there were several things about it that seemed really odd or even objectionable to me. The first being that it it assumes a closed system, which you pointed out in your article. Mm -hmm. So no electricity trade with other countries or systems is possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two, it only allows pumped hydro for storage. So no battery or other storage systems are allowed. Mm -hmm. Three, it assumed a deregulated energy only market. So it forecloses on the payment structures like power purchase agreements, which is, as you pointed out, how most of the generators for wind and solar are getting paid today. So that it forecloses on that and on any possibility that storage or renewable energy systems might get paid for maintaining capacity or these ancillary services we discussed. So that's off the table. Four, it assumes that when the generation of wind and solar is high, that they'll be curtailed, just throw the power out rather than storing it with any kind of non-hydro devices or rather than allowing spot prices to go negative which is an important market signal, right? And five, only thermal generators, only the conventional fossil fuel nuclear plants, are given a full set of market valuations for their power. So the very structure of Hearth's model seemed designed to me to limit what renewables can do in the most restrictive possible way. And so the key finding that renewables will be a victim of their own success, I thought was highly suspect. I mean, did did you have any of those same objections? You know, I just got introduced to that research through the MIT Future of Solar paper and the subsequent stuff, so I've not read his papers yet. But I think there there was a fundamental point of my article that, and maybe I just gleaned this through the MIT paper reflecting Hertz's work, the, the fundamental point of my essay was that the conventional market design where you have energy bidders stacked up and the clearing price is awarded to them, really is designed for dispatchable generation that responds to market prices. Right. And it's such a fundamental part of the market that people don't even question it anymore. It's like questioning that the sun shines. Right. But wind and solar are not dispatchable and they do not respond to market prices in real time. Uh, They produce generation when the sun shines and when the wind blows. So they are absolutely square pegs in the round hole of a typical market design. And if you analyze their value based on a traditional market framework, then they simply doesn't add up. It does not compute. And you get all of these perverse effects. And that was the whole premise of my article that wind and solar need to be essentially taken out of that conventional market. And whatever's left over needs to be designed 
to facilitate wind and solar. Either that or you just simply redesign the entire market so that everything works mm -hmm. in, a, in a better fashion. Right. This is a very complicated question, and I don't have the answer to this yet. But in general, I think there should be two markets, the wind and solar market, which is where you use competitive forces to decide which projects to get built and where they should be built. And then there's the the everything else market, the residual market, where dispatchable generation, demand response, and storage, and customer response all essentially compete to meet the residual load, the net demand market. Huh. I got to meet Reiner Baca last year and a couple of years ago. He was the founder of Agora Energy Vendor, which is a Berlin think tank, right. one of the leading analytical groups in Berlin. And he's now the deputy minister for the Merkel administration on energy. He's essentially the, the Energy Vendor secretary. Okay. And Agora put out a report a few years ago, basically very simply describing what the findings of the Energy Vendor are or what they look like they were heading toward. And one clear finding was that wind and solar are the winners that they're clean, they're affordable, and they're scalable. And that really wasn't true with biopower, bioenergy. Hmm. Um, they have very little hydro. Fossil fuel with carbon sequestration is not really competitive. So fuel cells, et cetera, it's really wind and solar that are the winners. And the catch is that they're, as I said, they're dispatched by nature. They're not dispatched by prices. Right. So what do you do? If you want a low-carbon power system of the future, you will need lots of wind and solar. And if you need lots of wind and solar, you need to redesign your system to make sure that they succeed. I think what a lot of people are coming from, you know, the criticism I've gotten for the article has been, well, but you have to respect the market forces and economic efficiency and blah, blah, blah. You know, the Jesse Jenkins at MIT told me that I was confusing the means with the ends that the end is a low carbon energy system, right? And the means that I'm saying are, oh, it's all about wind and solar. So what we want is a low carbon energy system. And what we should have, therefore, is a, a market design that will deliver low carbon at the least cost. But, you know, I think that doesn't respect the fundamental problem that wind and solar, which are obviously big parts of the solution, are simply not well served by normal markets. Mm -hmm. You know, markets are designed to deliver certain outcomes. Obviously, a price-responsive merit-order dispatch market is designed for dispatchable power that responds to prices. Well, exactly. I think a lot of these complaints or protestations about respecting the market basically means, don't you dare touch the way that the current market is structured. We must make everything else fit within that instead mm -hmm. of saying... Uh, maybe we need to redesign the market given the new supply that we know that we want. I've likened it to trying to bolt a new Lamborghini engine on the chassis of a Model T. So it's just kind of a dumb thing to do, you know. I mean, you could do it if you really had to. But if yeah. you want a high-performance race car, you actually design the chassis to fit the engine. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. kind of an obvious thing. Yeah. But, of course, incumbents who benefit from the way that the markets are currently structured and who have built their entire businesses around them and are totally dependent on those businesses remaining with the existing business models, of course, don't want anybody monkeying with the design of the market. So mm -hmm. a lot of this, I think, is sort of coded messaging. 
Yeah, I think it can be. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't put, you know, Jesse Jenkins in that camp of trying to protect the incumbents. I think, I think instead it's, like I said, it's, it's such a basic fundamental way of thinking that economic markets are efficient and therefore the best way to accommodate carbon is to put a price on carbon in conventional market. And that's true up to a point, but I think with this problem that we have generators that don't respond to prices, it doesn't really matter how much carbon you put on the price, you know? Right. It doesn't matter what the price is either. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the price is. Right. I mean, it does matter in terms of the investment decision. Certainly investors will need to anticipate future revenues before they put down their millions on a solar plant or a wind plant. But in terms of the operation, the day-to-day operation of the grid, it really doesn't matter what the price of carbon is. Yeah. So that's what I mean. It's such a square peg, you know, world exactly. around holes. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the other half of this question is, as we get into a high renewables future, what do we do with the essentially the stranded assets of the legacy conventional mm-hmm. generators? How do we try to prevent undue losses for their owners? as their units are squeezed out of the grid. What's the latest thinking on that question? (laughs) Yeah, stranded assets. That takes me back to the days of restructuring in the 90s Mm. when that was such a a critical part of all of the political deals that were cut around moving to deregulated markets. There was just an enormous buy-off. The conventional generators got bought off essentially to support the transition because ratepayers paid for their plants in advance. We're seeing it again around the clean power plan. Some utilities in recent years invested heavily in scrubbers and other pollution control devices on their old coal plants. Now that it's carbon that's being regulated, some of those plants are under pressure to reduce carbon emissions, or the other plant owners are. And they've just invested hundreds of millions of dollars in these conventional pollution control devices, and they want to depreciate that investment over many years to come. So if you just put a billion dollars into scrubbers, you want to run that plant for another 20 years, right? Sure. And you run into this carbon problem from the clean power plan. Right. So, you know, I was just looking at Colorado and Wisconsin and Kansas are good examples here. In Colorado, Governor Ritter struck a deal five, eight years ago or so to shut down some Denver area coal plants and replace them with gas efficiency and renewables. And it was a legislative deal. The result was, has turned out that instead of investing in scrubbers for those plants to clean up the, you know, the famous brown cloud in Denver. Right. Instead of investing in scrubbers, they invested in transitioning away from coal. Right. So meanwhile, you switch to Kansas and Wisconsin, those utilities made massive investments in scrubbers, hundreds of millions of dollars. Remain totally committed to coal. Totally committed to coal. Huge rate increases now to pay for those improvements. Right. And guess what? (laughs) Now they're on the hook for carbon. Yeah. Which those scrubbers didn't do anything about. Yeah, because those scrubbers were designed to handle things like sulfur and excess NOx emissions and so on. Mm -hmm. The scrubbers aren't a solution to carbon emissions, right? I mean, you have to go to carbon capture and sequestration. And so far, no one has figured out how to make that work commercially on a regular coal power plant. The only CCS projects I know of that are actually functioning are actually being able to sell that CO2 to some sort of secondary market, usually for enhanced oil recovery. Right. But you can't just 
put that on any old power plant anywhere and expect to be able to make the thing pay. It just doesn't work commercially. Yeah, well, especially if you don't have a price on carbon. Right. You know, then your product is worth nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so the stranded investment, I, I mean, most American coal plants are so old anyway, it's hard to argue that they're stranded at this point. I think the average age is over 40 years old. Yeah, and I mean, apart from these recent investments in scrubbers and so on, you, you would think right. that the plant would have been fully amortized by now. Yeah, so it'd be interesting to see calculation of how much has been invested in scrubbers and whether that scrubber investment is stranded. Right. And frankly, I bet some of these scrubbers cost as much as the plant did <laughs> in the first place. Probably. So I guess the question of how to make the investors in these conventional plants whole sort of remains to be answered. Yeah. I think one benefit of the move to more competitive markets is that it's really hard for a competitive power marketer to argue that their investment has been stranded because the whole point of deregulation was to put the risk of investment on the investor. Right. So to me, that implies that there is no regulatory compact that says an investor has to get paid for stranded assets. No, I think that's true. I mean, hey, that's capitalism. You know, you win, you lose. But in, in kind of the broader context, you would have to think that there's got to be some way to, okay, maybe investors in these conventional plants have to take some sort of a haircut, but you can't just try to wash them all out, mm -hmm. completely have all those investments go to zero. Because if that's the proposal from a policy standpoint, you're going to have so much political resistance from the people that stand to lose all that money mm -hmm. that you're basically not going to be able to get anywhere with your policy. So as a practical matter, yes, it's capitalism. Yes, you pays you money, it takes you chances. And maybe some of the investors in those conventional plans do have to lose their money. But as a practical matter of policy formulation, I think there ought to be some path to let them get paid a little something or at least limit their losses. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's not going to be nearly as much an issue as it was around restructuring hmm. uh, in the 90s and 2000s. Why is that? Well, because like I said, the coal plants are old. They're very old. They don't really warrant stranded asset payments, except maybe for their scrubbers. And in so many of the markets, there have been so many investments in competitive generation that, like I said, have a hard time making the case for a stranded asset payment. You know, frankly, I don't think the transition to renewables is going to be so fast that people are going to get stuck with prematurely obsolete investments. Mm. It's a, certainly a steady transition but it's not going to be so shockingly fast that people are going to get stuck with relatively new plants. You know, there are certainly exceptions. One big issue in Germany has been that the gas plants, the new high-efficiency combined cycle gas plants, are some of the least competitive plants on the market. Because the price of gas over there is so much higher than here. Yeah, the price of gas is high and the price of carbon credits is low. Right. So you get these old stinky lignite plants that are doing just fine and beating the pants off of these new gas plants. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could argue that the the new gas plants are the stranded asset, but it's not a stranded asset from any regulatory sense. It's just that it turned out to be a bad investment right. uh, so far. Once again, pointing to the need for market reforms that help you get where you're trying to go. I mean, if where you're trying to go is, let's get rid of the filthiest, lowest grade of coal and go with cleaner burning gas, and your market doesn't support that, then you'd probably need to change the way the market works. 
Yeah, exactly. And they need to come up with a, a mechanism to create a higher carbon price. Right. And that's very complicated because they are part of the European Union trading scheme. And the EU doesn't like to have individual members messing around with the market. Right. They want a free market across the continent so that everyone competes fairly. And even though the EU carbon market has been broken for years and people have constantly been talking about how to fix it, as far as I know, there hasn't been any real action to make that work yet. Yeah, they need action on it, that's for sure. I know there has been some talk about accelerating, I think it was intended to accelerate the ramp down on the cap, but I, I don't know enough about it. To- yeah, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole complicated topic unto itself. We don't need to get into that today. So, so far we've kind of discussed the economic limits of wind and solar as generation increases, but there's also technical limits in terms of transmission capacity, how grid operators will keep the power flowing with larger amounts of variable generation on the grid, on-demand power from conventional generators, storage capacity, and so on. I mean, that's kind of a whole nother deep subject that we actually got into in the last episode with McKay Miller, but Mm. I just kind of wondered if you could share a few brief thoughts about technical limits in general, like how much can today's technical limits on renewable generation tell us about the share of generation that they might have 20 or 30 years from now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the whole point of the power markets project was to look at the financial issues around integrating renewables, especially wind and solar. The technical issues around integration, I think, are really fascinating. My sense is that they're much more well in hand, that grid operators are finding that it's really not that hard, that there are plenty of technical solutions, and that the technical solutions are cost-effective and tend to increase reliability and lower costs. Hmm. So a big example is in the Western U.S., which has something like 40 different balancing areas, which is a relic of the old old days when every utility balanced their own system. There is a movement toward balancing market, the energy imbalance market, where utilities sort of share the balancing function. That's great for wind and solar because it helps integrate them in a much larger pool of demand. Mm-hmm. But it's also great for saving money because you don't need as many balancing plants. You don't need your own reserves. You just share reserves with your neighbor and you save a huge amount of money. Right. It increases reliability because you have more, through the power of statistics, essentially, you have a smoother demand curve, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of thing just makes a lot of sense from an operational perspective. And it also happens to be good for wind and solar. And it basically creates a more efficient system. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, we've seen the rest of the country has already moved toward bigger systems, our regional transmission organizations, RTOs. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see someday that MISO in the upper Midwest would merge with the Southwest Power Pool in mm. the lower Midwest. Okay. Because they're both integrating really huge amounts of wind power. And that, that number is not going to slow down in the least bit because the wind resource is so good, the prices are so low, and the economic development benefits are so profound. So we're going to see a huge amount of wind across the wind belt. I think the Lawrence Berkeley Lab put out their numbers about wind power costs recently, and the recent costs have been like less than two and a half cents a kilowatt hour. Right, which is lower than coal. Just shockingly low. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's lower than most existing plants. Yeah already built plants, you know, 40-year-old plants. 40-year-old plants Um, without any special equipment and all that stuff, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, of course, that includes the PTC. 
Right. Production tax credit, which may or may not be coming back. It looks like it might. There's been some movement recently. Anyway, in the long run, wind is a cheap resource and we're going to see a lot of it. Solar is getting to be a very cheap resource and we're going to see a lot of it. But I think the integration tools that grid operators have at their disposal are sufficient to the task for many years to come. Not only bigger balancing areas, but also all of the demand side flexibility that's largely untapped at this point. More flexible generation as we retire coal plants and move to gas plants. Gas tends to be more flexible than coal. And frankly, even nuclear retirements in some places are going to make for a more flexible power system. And really all of that to me, again, is ultimately creating a more efficient system, right? I mean, you're essentially eliminating a huge excess of capacity that's just waiting around by making sure that your system is more finely tuned so that supply equals demand more closely Mm -hmm. and you're taking advantage of the lowest cost resource. Well, I've said for a long time that there's really no technical reason why we can't have a very large percentage of renewables on the grid. It's really a question of human arrangements. It's a question of what we're willing to do as we design a 21st century grid, get rid of a lot of old outmoded equipment and build something that's more appropriate as we move toward cleaner sources, as we move to new market designs. Those are all human arrangements. There's no technology reason why it can't be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Ben, it's been a fascinating conversation. I always enjoy talking to you. You're so smart about this stuff. And <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Yeah, frankly, I feel like I'm learning on the job. Aren't we all? I mean, hey, you know, (laughs) one of my main objectives here is to explore the questions that don't have obvious answers, Mm -hmm. because this is a process. It's not a clear, defined path, and we all kind of have to figure it out as we go. So always a pleasure to talk to somebody who's up to speed on stuff. Well, thanks for having me on your show. All right. Thank you, Ben. That was Ben Paulus, principal of Paulus Analytics and director of the Power Markets Project. Always interesting to talk to him. Guy really understands power markets at a level most people don't. And I hope this was an interesting conversation for listeners to sort of begin to grasp the dimensions of these difficult challenges about how we reform markets so that they really are accommodative of renewables and all sorts of generators that really have zero marginal cost. We should not assume too much about what power markets of the future will look like and how these different types of generators will be compensated in the future. We certainly should not assume, I think, that at some point as renewables get to a high level of penetration that the value of everything is going to go to zero and that power markets will collapse and that the only solution to that is to deploy a lot of storage or to continue subsidizing renewables. That would be the case if we totally left the existing power markets intact and tried to keep pushing more renewable power onto it. But I don't think any serious person would believe that that's the way forward. So there are some really interesting market reform efforts underway, in particular the Reforming the Energy Vision, or REV, project in New York, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Some of the market reforms that Ben talked about that are happening in Germany, which really is a world leader in terms of accommodating new renewables, incentivizing them, figuring out how to make the markets work for them. We'll also explore the energy venda in a, in a future episode. But there are a lot of really interesting questions here, and I think it's important for us to think creatively about them 
not to be too attached to thinking about the current market structure, the current grid power topography, and to imagine what would in fact be possible if we wanted to make it that way. I would encourage listeners to check out the study that Ben mentioned in his piece by Mills and Weiser, Strategies for Mitigating the Reduction and Economic Value of Variable Generation with Increasing Penetration Levels. Long title there, but you can find that on the show notes page. That was a study from 2014, which looked at ways to mitigate the declining marginal value of solar wind as it got a higher penetration on the grid. And those solutions included siting wind generators in more diverse locations, using combinations of variable generators. So for example, wind is generating at night when solar isn't. More flexible, conventional power plants that can ramp up and down more easily. Bulk power storage, of course. And demand shifting technologies so that loads can be shifted by consumers on demand to times of the day when prices are lower. All of these strategies, and there are more as well, can help us accommodate higher levels of renewables on the grid without completely destroying the economic value for all participants. So when you hear it thunder, don't run under a tree. There'll be pennies from heaven for you and me. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Royal Dutch Shell formally gave up on its Arctic drilling program last week after more than eight years of effort and $7 billion in spending. The exploration well it finally completed in the Arctic this summer found too little oil and gas to warrant further exploration in the area, after touting the prospect as potentially several times larger than the largest prospects in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico. The company will take at least a $4 billion write-down on the failed effort, and other oil companies that have been eyeing their own forays into the U.S. portion of the Arctic are now unlikely to proceed, although oil companies such as Italy's ENI and Russia's Rosneft are still exploring other portions of the Arctic. The important lesson in this isn't about production. How much oil might have come from the Arctic and when was always a distant uncertainty. What is important is that this closes off yet another avenue to the future of the oil industry. For more than a decade, we have been told that the Arctic was thought to contain a fifth of the world's undiscovered technically recoverable oil, and up to a third of the undiscovered technically recoverable natural gas, and that the region would meet our future demands for oil and gas as production from existing fields declined. But now it seems that all of the expensive, unconventional sources of oil and gas that have been touted for years, including the Canadian tar sands, the pre-salt resources of offshore Brazil, deep water projects around the world, and now the Arctic, are in doubt. Especially given oil prices in 2015, which have been well below the prices needed to support these new, unconventional projects. Which brings us to item two. Rachel Notley, the new premier of Alberta, Canada, said last week that she sees no long-term future in fossil fuels. This is a sharp break with the past, as was her election, which broke a 44-year grip that conservatives had on the province. Instead, Notley wants to reduce carbon emissions from tar sands operations in the province, close coal-fired power plants, and switch to wind and solar. Since the Alberta tar sands represent the third largest carbon reserves in the world, this will continue to be an important administration for transitionistas to watch. Item 3. According to a new report from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, utility-scale solar projects in the U.S. are regularly securing power purchase agreements, or PPAs, for $0.05 per kilowatt hour or less, 
which is equivalent to $50 per megawatt or less. That puts the real contracted cost of solar power generation right in the middle of typical wholesale power prices reported by EIA for July in every region of the United States and toward the low end of the most recent annual range. Remember, during the polar vortex last winter, wholesale power prices in the mid-Atlantic and the northeast regions exceeded $200 per megawatt hour. Now, recall that in the last episode of the Energy Transition Show with McKay Miller of NREL, I pointed out that the data reported by NREL is often out of date and doesn't reflect these recent real-world power prices. The RE Futures study that we discussed in that episode refers to the Transparent Cost Database published by the Open Energy Information Project for its technology cost assumptions. And right now, the Levelized Cost of Energy, or LCOE, for solar PV reported in that database has a minimum of $0.06 cents and a maximum of $0.56 cents per kilowatt hour, with a median of $0.29. Cents. Therefore, the $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour that the new LBNL report says is typical for utility-scale solar PPAs today is well below the minimum cost shown in the Transparent Cost Database and well below the assumptions used in the NREL RE Futures study. It's also below the retail cost of power to any type of customer in almost every region of the United States. Now, I realize this is pretty wonky information, and it's probably hard to absorb in podcast form, so let me just put it this way. When comparing the cost of power generation from different fuels, it's usually safe to assume that the cost of solar is wildly overstated in whatever data source you're looking at, and that the market is actually adopting solar much more quickly than the latest futures model would have you think. In the domain of renewable power, everything is simply moving much too quickly for most agencies to keep up with, and data even a year old is badly out of date. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.